listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Uh, Today we're going to be reading out of the book of Psalm, uh, Psalm 123, or Psalms. Um, So please, if you're not already standing, go ahead and stand and uh, read along silently as I read aloud. Psalm 123, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. It's good just to, uh, to worship with you this morning. Man, you guys are singing loudly and joyfully this morning. And just grateful to be able to be here with you to experience that uh, today. I know some of you may not be feeling particularly joyful this morning, uh, but I'm grateful that God has brought you here in his providence. He wanted you to be here this morning so that others might be able to sing in faith and joy over you. So no matter where you find yourself, I'm just grateful to be able to worship with you this morning and now open up God's word. As we get ready to do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. So would you pray with me? Father of mercy, we come before you this morning, and as our psalm declares, we cry out for mercy. God, would you help us even in this moment to receive what you have for us? God, would you help us in this moment to be still and to know that you are Lord? No matter what's going on in our lives right now, whether things are going well or things are extremely difficult right now, God, I pray that this morning that you would shower mercy upon us. Help us to see you for who you are today. Help us to be still and wait for you. I pray that you would help us by your spirit to receive your word today. Help us, God, to receive what you want to teach us, what you want to show us, what you want to reveal to us about yourself, about ourselves as we place ourselves before your living and active word. God, I pray by the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would nourish our souls this morning. Would you revive us where we need reviving? Would you restore us where, you, where we need restoring? God, I pray that you'd lead us and draw us ever closer to you today. God, this time is a gift from you. Help us to receive it as such, and may you be glorified today. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Maybe you've heard the, uh, the phrase before, the eyes are the window to the soul. The eyes are the window to the soul. The idea with that is that by looking into someone's eyes, you can actually learn a whole lot about who they are, learn about what they're thinking and feeling, the emotions, the makeup of who they are. In fact, there's an article in Psychology Today that says you, you actually can tell a lot by looking at someone's eyes. They say this, when people are sad or worried, they furrow their brow, which makes the eyes look smaller. Yet when people are cheerful, we correctly call them bright-eyed. It's because people raise their eyebrows when they're happy, making their eyes look bigger and brighter. They go on to say that it's actually your pupils, they can be even more telling, not just because they dilate and contract when light is present or removed, but 
they can dilate and contract based off your thoughts and emotions. So maybe you really can tell a lot by what you see in a person's eyes as you look into their eyes, but something else is also true. You can tell a lot about a person. You can tell a lot about yourself, not only by looking into their eyes, but also looking and seeing what they are looking at, what your eyes are focused on. Not only in a literal sense, but figuratively as well. See, what your eyes are fixed on reveals the focus of your life. What your eyes are fixed on reveals the focus of your life. In a world full of constant difficulty, in the world that we find ourselves in that is full of distractions, constantly vying for your attention to draw your focus and your gaze onto something else, it's extremely important to recognize the reality of what's going on in our life as we focus on those different things when it comes to the well-being of your soul. Jesus himself said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And Jesus said that speaking about money and greed. We've been in a summer sermon series called Songs for Sojourning. We've been taking several weeks over the summer to walk through several of what's called the Psalms of Ascent. Songs and poems that were written and rehearsed by God's people year after year after year as they journeyed to the temple to worship God, both individually and corporately. Now, you and I don't travel to a temple any longer to worship God, but all of us are on a spiritual journey, and all of life is an opportunity for worship. And when I say worship, what I mean by that is, is ascribing worth to something or someone And we worship what we set our gaze on. We worship what we focus on. So at a basic level, all of our worship will either tend towards the creator or his creation. Whether that be another person or the things that God has made. And so as we find ourselves on this journey, we quickly realize that in the midst of this life that we don't live on this kind of straight and easy road, that life is full of difficulty, it's full of challenges that have come about in our life and in this world as a result of brokenness, brokenness that is caused by sin and rebellion against God. And when things get difficult in your life, when things are difficult in the world you find yourself in, whether that's due to sin and the effects of sin out there or the sin and effects of sin that are going on within you, we can become distracted And our view can become obscured or obstructed. We regularly need refocusing. We regularly need refocusing in order to set our gaze once again on the one who alone is worthy of all of our worship. We need refocusing to to set again our gaze on the one who alone can give us life and peace and hope and help in time of need. And our psalm today will help us do just that. See, today we're, you see this kind of corporate song of God's people, and we see that it serves as a reminder about where our eyes are looking, and also as a prayer and plea for mercy for weary souls. So no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey this morning, if you're walking closely with Jesus right now, or maybe you're here kind of checking out who Jesus is and what this whole church thing is about, no matter how weary you are right now or how joyful you are right now, My hope for you is that God will use his timeless holy word to encourage you and to empower you to lift your eyes, to lift your eyes and set your gaze on the one who is enthroned 
in the heavens. And that brings us to the very first verse of Psalm 123 this morning. In Psalm 123, it's four short verses that can really be divided into two sections. The first section is verses 1 and 2, and within this section, we see the author making a declaration about what he and God's people are doing. And then in verses 3 and 4, he shifts gears a bit and focus a little bit, and it becomes a, a prayer and a plea for mercy. The psalm begins with a personal declaration from the author. It's a, it's a statement of ongoing action on behalf of the speaker. And what is it that he's doing? Look at verse 1 again. He says, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And there's a lot that we can observe and learn just from this one verse. The author says he's, he's lifting his eyes up. He's not looking down on something. He's not looking at the same level as something else that's right across from him. He's lifting his eyes up. He's raising his eyes up. And he lifts his eyes, he lifts his gaze, he lifts his focus, not just on anyone or anything. It says he lifts his eyes to the one who is enthroned in the heavens. In this moment, there's an immediate recognition of the position he has in relation to who God is. That he sees God as lifted up, as higher than himself, that he's not on the same level as God. He certainly doesn't look down at God, but in order to see God rightly, he has to lift his gaze up to see him. Immediately establishes this position of God being lifted up and us being lower than him. And that's the same for us today. We look up to God. He has no rival. Our God has no equal. He alone is the one who is enthroned in the heavens. To be enthroned is to be the king. And his place of ruling is not some man-made castle or kingdom. It's not arbitrary boundaries drawn around a piece of land. No, he reigns and rules from the heavens. And he's not just a king, but he's the king of kings whose time and tenure has no end. He is the one who sovereignly rules and reigns over all things for all time. In verse 1, the psalmist is acknowledging the truth of what we also see in Psalm 115, verse 3, which says our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. This is important for us, an important statement, a foundational statement to God. It's directed to God and about who God is. And it really impacts the way we understand and apply the rest of this psalm. But see, this view of God with his gaze set on God, is not just something that the author does alone. The community of God's people also set their gaze on him. Look at verse 2. It says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. The author gives a simile to explain the action of God's people. He's saying, look, just like a male servant or a female servant looks to the hand of their master or mistress, so God's people look to the Lord. They look to Yahweh, to the God, in the same way. What's he trying to communicate here? He's using this imagery to explain something important for us. See, we need to understand that first off, male and female servants are often in a place of vulnerability and dependence. They, they have to look out for their lives and livelihood. It's dependent on the kindness and favor of whoever it is that's an authority over them, whoever it is that they're serving. If their master or mistress is kind and loving and gracious towards them, then it'll go well for them. If they are wicked and evil and harsh towards them, then it won't. 
And so there's a place of vulnerability that's expressed in this illustration. But he doesn't just say that they're looking at the one who is in authority, whether that's their master or mistress, but they look to the hand of the one who is in authority over them. The hand of the master is the source of provision. The hand of the master is the source of protection. It's a source of direction, telling the servant what he or she should do at any given moment in their lives. That's why their eyes must be fixed on the hand of their master, to look to them so they don't miss anything of what the master's giving them or what the master's directing them to do. They're, they're locked in, they're zeroed in on that hand because they don't want to miss what they have for them. So the author is saying, just like those servants, look with a laser focus in the way, in this way, towards their master, so our eyes, as God's people, have to look to Yahweh, our God, in the same way. But he takes it a bit further, because he gives us both a time limit to do this and a specific reason for doing it, for fixing our eyes on God. He says, until he has mercy upon us. And it's at this point that the psalm shifts from this declaration about our focus on God to a prayer to God for him to act. Look at verses 3 and 4. The psalmist writes, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. See, this is not just some generic psalm with truths about God and the life we have with him. His people are in a vulnerable position. They're desperate for help. They need the mercy of God to relieve and release them. They're in some kind of distress in their lives. And he says what that is. It's they're experiencing this contempt and scorn. Apparently, there are people all around God's people. Maybe it's as they travel to the temple Maybe it's some of God's people themselves who are looking down on them and treating them this way. Maybe it's people who don't yet believe. But whoever it is, they're showing them contempt and scorn. They're showing disrespect and dislike for God's people. It has the the sense of shaming them. They're, They're reviling them. They're ridiculing them. They're scoffing at them. They have disdain for God's people. And we don't know exactly who it is that's doing this or exactly how that's manifesting in their lives, but the author says that it comes from the proud and those who are at ease. In other words, it's people in a place of privilege who are not following God as king. They are the prominent and the popular, arrogant and overconfident. And they look at God's people seeking to live under God's rule and they laugh at them make fun of them and tear them down. So God's people are crying out for mercy from God. And they're crying out for mercy because they say they've had more than enough. They can't endure any longer. It's overwhelming to them. It's wearying to them. It's crushing their soul. And that's the nature of contempt and scorn. Reviling and ridiculing, it adds insult to injury. It's cold and hurtful. So God's people are dealing with some serious difficulty in some way, and and even if we don't know exactly how that's manifesting in their lives, I'm sure we can imagine it. Some of us can even empathize with them in this. Maybe you have experienced contempt and scorn in your life. Maybe you are experiencing contempt and scorn in your life. Maybe it's from a coworker or a family member 
right now, a neighbor, an acquaintance, maybe even someone who calls himself a brother or sister in Christ is throwing contempt at you, is scorning you and scoffing at you and reviling and ridiculing you right now. I know that many people around our country, many of our brothers and sisters around the world experience this on a regular basis. We could look at the state of our country right now and see all kinds of difficulty and brokenness, whether it's systemic racism or personal racism that takes place or people targeting individuals because of how they look or where they come from. That's contempt and scorn. Maybe they're experiencing prejudice in some way or injustice or wrong in some way or capacity from an individual or from the systems of our culture, whatever it happens to be. It's, it's wicked. It deserves God's justice. And at the personal level, it's wearying to the soul. We have brothers and sisters all around the world right now that find themselves in countries and places that experience contempt and scorn on a daily basis. Brothers and sisters that seek to gather together on a weekly basis to praise God, to receive his word, and as they do that with joy, they also do it with trembling and fear, not knowing if someone might come in and arrest them, persecute, or kill them. People reviling and ridiculing them for their faith in Christ. Maybe that's not what you're dealing with at the moment. But when you read this psalm, and you see the words that say that our soul has had more than enough, you can relate to that because there's something going on in your life right now that feels wearying to your soul. Where you feel the weight of difficulty, the weight of brokenness going on in your life right now. Whatever the case may be for you or for others, whether it's in the past, in the present, or will be for you in the future, we have to ask ourselves this morning, what's the purpose of this song then, psalm and song for God's people then and for God's people now? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? And we have to remember this psalm was written at a specific time about a specific situation. But also remember that this is a psalm and a song that was sung and recited by God's people for thousands of years. Why? Because God's people then and now are always facing challenges in this life. God's people then and now are always in need of his mercy and help. But you and I find ourselves in a culture that tells us that when we're experiencing something that's wearying to our souls, when we feel the weight of life crushing in on us, whether it's because we've done something or because something's been done to us, our culture tells us, listen, if that's your experience, just cut and run. Like, get away from whatever that thing is that's going on in your life. Our culture tells us to, to find help in other things. Our culture tells us just numb yourself. Find something to distract you or numb you from the pain or experience that you're going through. Our culture tells us just to complain about it. It'll be cathartic for you. But the psalmist doesn't call us to do any of those things. No, instead, he reminds us of something extraordinary. The psalmist reminds you this morning of who your God is. The psalmist reminds you this morning of who your God is and where your gaze should be in the midst of the difficulty and distress of life. And it's extremely important for us to be reminded of in order that we might experience rest in the midst of the difficulty because it presses on something that I think all of us can struggle with. See, the very nature of being in need of mercy is the fact that you can't relieve your distress. When you cry out for mercy, it's a, and it's an expression of your vulnerability and your dependence. You can't fix the situation that you're in. You need help from someone else. And the challenges of our lives often highlight something foundational to our existence as being creatures and not the creator. And that's this, you are not in control. You are not in control. 
And man, do I struggle with this on a regular basis in my own life. Whether things are easy or hard, I desire to be in control. I want to control what happens in my life. And God, in his kindness, even in this past month, continued to challenge me about this. But my desire to be in control and remind me that I'm not in control, but I'm wholly dependent on him. And it wasn't for something bad. It was for something good. We're in the process of seeking to sell our home and move one street over in our neighborhood. And we're excited about that. But throughout this whole process, I've recognized and had to acknowledge to God, I have zero control over this. I can't make this happen. I can't orchestrate things so that it'll go the way that I hope and want it to go for our family. We believe to be a good thing. So even those little things in your life or the big things in your life, not always the bad things in your life, God is always reminding you that you are not in control. He alone sits on the throne. So this song for sojourning very simply but profoundly calls the community of the redeemed to have hope and faith in the midst of difficulty, not because you're in control, because God is. You see, this is a call not to have faith in your faith, See, too often in the midst of our distress and our difficulty and desire for control, in the midst of the unknown in our life, in order to help ourselves move forward, sometimes we can be tempted to look to our faith instead of the object of our faith. And when we do that, when we look at our faith, we inevitably start to look at our feelings. As one pastor writes, if you ground God's love for you in your feelings, neither your conscience or your heart will be satisfied. Why? Because feelings are fleeting and fickle. What the psalmist is calling us to do, though, is he's calling us to lift your eyes and set your gaze once again on your God who is faithful. And who is this faithful God? Well, he tells us in verse 1. Go back and look at it again. To you I lift up my eyes Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Listen, our God desires to serve you, but he is not some errand boy, as if you're the master calling the shots in your life. Our God desires to serve you, but he's also not like some far-off, distant bureaucracy where you only show up and ask for help when you need it. And you kind of wait in line for it. And then you sit at home and you wait for a check to show up or something like an Amazon package to arrive at your door. No, this is not a picture of some puppet God. It's a picture of a king who's enthroned in the heavens. The one who made all things. The one who called everything into existence by the word of his mouth and the power that existed within him in and of himself. The God who is self-sufficient, eternal, and everlasting, who's ever-present in the midst of your life, knows all things and has all power to do all things. The one who said to Job when Job was questioning God and the difficulty of his own life said, where were you? when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you know when the goat gives birth to her baby? Do you know how the boundaries of the sea have been established? Do you know what's going on in the depths of the earth, or the stars of the heaven? Do you know any of those things, he asked Job. And all Job can say is, I put my hand to hand over my mouth. You alone are God. This is the God that we serve. He is knowable, but he's unsearchable. We can't plumb the depths of who God is. He is high and lifted up above us in every way, shape, and form that we could possibly think of, yet at the very same time as a God who's imminent involved in the very details of our lives. That's an amazing and awesome reality. Listen, you don't want an explainable God. You don't want a God that you can put in a box, that you know what he's going to do every moment, every second of your life. If you have a God like that, it's no God. It's just an image of you. No, I want a God who's unexplainable. 
unimaginable, that I can't wrap my mind around. So let me ask you this morning, are you unimpressed with the kingliness of God? Are you unfazed by the kingliness of God, the one who sits on the throne, who gives mercy? Does it wreck you and comfort you? Or has it just become kind of a a ho-hum reality? Do you read something like this but not recognize and acknowledge the reality of what it is? Do you see these words on the page but they not shape you? Brothers and sisters, would you, by God's grace, look at them this morning and see them with fresh eyes so that you might lift your eyes to set them on the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Don't you think God knows more about what is going on in your life right now and what you need than you do? And do you actually believe that to be true? He is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. But that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that we don't know what he's like. He has told us and shown us what he's like over and over and over again. He is the one who declares about himself to be a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And how has he and does he show mercy and grace and steadfast love? He shows it in his leading and his guiding. He shows it in his providing and in his presence. He shows it in the passing of time and seasons. He shows it in his unconditional forgiveness. He shows it in the pursuit and the preservation of and patience with his people. This book is full of those stories. Sure, we learn about Adam and Eve. We learn about David. We learn about Abraham. We learn about all these different people, but it's not about them. It's about the God they serve who continues to be patient with them and show them grace and mercy and love and pursue them time and time and time again. God shows his mercy ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 2. This is talking about the reality of where you stand before God prior to placing your faith in Christ and after God rescuing you. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others. Does that sound like our world today? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior and if we think that all Christ has done 
is just gone to the cross and redeemed us, taking on all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our rebellion and rising in from the grave. We've missed more of what Christ has done. In his perfect life, he was ridiculed. He was reviled. He experienced contempt and scorn. He hung on a cross and he had people around him saying, you're the Savior, you're God, and you can't even get yourself down off the cross. And Jesus knows what it's like. Yeah, he did not return reviling with more reviling, but entrusted himself to the judgment of God. Friends, God has lavished mercy on you. He has lavished mercy on you. He has poured out an abundance on you in and through Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So listen to me. What that means for you in your, in your life right now, in any given moment, that you need mercy whatever difficulty you find yourself facing, when you're crying out to God for mercy, listen to me, it isn't an attempt to get God to do something for you as if he was reluctant to do it. When you cry out for mercy from a merciful God, you are reaching out to him because you know what he does and you know who he is. When you lift your eyes and look to your God who's enthroned in the heavens, crying out to him for help, it allows you in that moment to relent and to acknowledge you are not God, you are not in control. And it's in that moment that leads to rest where you can take a, take a deep breath and inhale and entrust yourself fully to him. But realize that as you strive to lift your eyes and seek God's mercy, it's a moment by moment reality for your life because we find ourselves in this life experiencing both joy and grief. It can be difficult when you're going through difficulty to lift your eyes, to focus again on Christ when you're in need of mercy. Recently, I went to a, a D.C. United soccer game with, uh, with Daniel Nazario. Daniel's up here beating on the box behind me, if you don't know Daniel. And I've never been to a, to a, a Major League soccer game before, so he's explaining different things to me. And, and when D.C. United scored, someone set off a, a red smoke bomb in celebration. So there's red smoke wafting over the field, and it was, people were excited when the game's going on, but Daniel said, you know, at bigger international soccer games, when the home team scores, there's like multiple smoke bombs that go off, so much so that you can't even see the field anymore, that obstructs your view for a little while, and when you're in the midst of distress, it can feel like that. You know something's going on, but you can't quite see through the fog. You can't quite see through the smoke. Your vision's clouded. Let me ask you, have your eyes been dimmed by suffering? Whether that's suffering in your own life or just the brokenness and suffering of the world around us. When that happens, in those moments is the time that we need the truth of Psalm 123. To remember that our God is a God of mercy that we can cry out to with anything and everything. We can look to him and focus on him until he has mercy on us. We need to be reminded of that truth. It's in those moments when we're having trouble seeing what lies before us that we need God's people to help us. To lift our eyes and see our king once again. The reality of a life of a follower of Christ is that you often need to be reminded of what you already know and what you already believe. It's why we gather every week. We need to be reminded that we're not on this journey alone. We need to have the truth of God spoken over us and sung over us. It's why we read God's word, to be reminded and refreshed of who God is. It's why we worship together and lift up these songs of praise and lament at the same time. It's why we pray, not just to make requests to God, but to answer God as he's revealed himself to us in his word. 
It helps us to lift our eyes and look to him. Listen, he has spoken to us and he hears you in your joy and in your groaning. And we need to be reminded that our God is sure and steady. He is faithful and good. Now maybe for some of you right now, you don't believe that to be true. That you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Christ. Or maybe you've called yourself a follower of Jesus, but you're really struggling to believe the truth of who God is and the truth of the gospel. Well, first off, I just want you to know that we are grateful that you're here, that God has brought you to be with us this morning. We want this to be a place in a community that you can always ask questions, you can always wrestle with your faith, knowing that people are going to love and care for you and continue to point you towards our Savior. There's a story in John chapter 6 where Jesus says some hard words to a large group of, of disciples of those that are following him. And he says these hard words, and they're so difficult that some of those disciples, some of those people that were following Jesus walk away from him. And he looks at the disciples that are closest to him, and he says, are you going to leave also? Are you going to walk away also? And Peter responds with this really honest answer. He says, Lord, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. I don't know if Peter was struggling with doubt in that moment. It kind of sounds like it. It wasn't a real confident answer. His answer is, well, I, there's nothing really better out there besides you, Jesus, so we're going to stick with you. Man, who else has the words of life? The world's going to offer you all kinds of things. It's going to tell you to chase after all kinds of things, but Jesus alone is the provider of mercy. Jesus alone is the one who is faithful and good. He is the one that can rescue and redeem you. He is the king who sits on the throne. Where else will you go? So lift your eyes this morning. Look to him this morning and ask, ask, ask for mercy. Whether it's for the first time in your life right now or for the thousandth time. In Lamentations, a book in the Bible, a short book in the Bible, the author Jeremiah is in need of mercy. The book is called Lamentations. It's a, it's a long lament. I mean, I've said this before as we walk through some of these songs, but man, church, we need to learn to lament more often and, and in a better way to be honest about the difficulties of our life. And lamenting is not complaining, it's groaning. It's, it's crying out to God, acknowledging the difficulty of things that are going on in our life. Well, Jeremiah says this in Lamentations chapter three. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He's talking about God here. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand and then again and again the whole day long he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has enemies surrounding him, but he also knows that God is in control in the midst of this. And so he's confused and conflicted in the midst of this difficulty. But then he says this later on in chapter 3, speaking to God. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. He's, he's weary. He's crushed. But then he says this, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Jeremiah doesn't know if the situation is going to be fixed in exactly the way that he would want. He doesn't know exactly what God is up to, but he knows who God is. 
So he places his hope once again in, in him. Maybe that's the reality for your own life right now. Maybe God won't relieve your distress in the exact time and way that you want. Maybe he won't work in the way that you had hoped or prayed, but that doesn't mean that you can't still find your hope in him because who he is is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even if the distress remains for now, it doesn't mean that he isn't ultimately at work for your good and his glory. He is the potter who's molding us, shaping us, even using disobedience in our own lives to make us more like his son. So when we look to him, he starts to do those things, and that in and of itself is a great mercy of God. One pastor says this, there is more to being human than simply surviving. There is God. See, who God is, the one enthroned in the heavens, he enables you to pray and plead and do so with hope. It might even be the very difficulty or distress that you are in is the means for you to do exactly what the author writes about in verses 1 and 2. That you would start to look to God in that way, to lift your eyes, to keep them locked on the hands of your master until he has mercy on you, to get more of him. Friends, Psalm 123 is a song and a prayer. It's a declaration and a plea. Make it your prayer today. Make it your prayer this week, this month, this year. Make it the prayer of your life. God, I want my focus to be on you, and I'm desperate for your mercy. And maybe this prayer isn't explicitly for you right now, because life is joyful, and you're full of faith right now, and that's good, and we can celebrate and give thanks for that. You're not in a period of lamenting, and that's okay. We're part of a community, a family. So as you look at this text, you may say, God, I don't necessarily feel this way, but I know a brother who does. I know a sister who does. And so I'm going to pray this prayer for them and pray, God, that you would have mercy on them, that you would comfort them in their distress. You can pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who we know are experiencing scorn and contempt right now. As a community of the redeemed, let's make this our prayer for ourselves and for one another. All of us are on a journey. Don't lose sight of the one who is truly majestic along the way. Lift your eyes. Look to him who sits on the throne. Our God is a redeemer and a restorer, and his mercies are new every morning. As we come to the communion table now, we're given a chance to lift our eyes, to lift our gaze once again on our Savior King. See, this meal serves as both a reminder and a meal of spiritual nourishment for weary souls. As you eat the bread, it's a picture of Christ's body broken for you. And as you drink the cup, it's a picture of Christ's blood shed for you. And so as you come forward this morning, just be reminded, this gives you an opportunity to seek the Lord, who is gracious and merciful, full of steadfast love. Are you weary this morning? Come to the table, eat and drink. Are you joyful this morning? Come to the table, eat and drink. Are you experiencing distraction or despair this morning. Come to the table to eat and drink. Are you full of faith? Come to the table and eat and drink. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, we would ask you just to hang in your seat instead of coming forward because this is a declaration of our hope being in Jesus. Instead of coming forward to eat and drink, I want to invite you to come and take Christ this morning. Feast on the grace of Christ this morning that he gives to you. Cry out to him for mercy for the first time today. If you want to know what it looks like to, to follow Jesus, to live a life with Jesus and with his people, that's why we're here. So let somebody around you know that so we can journey with you. And those of you that will come forward, there are tables at the front and the back. 
Come as you are ready to come. Tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and hear what Christ, your Redeemer, has done for you, spoken over you today. Let's pray. God, as we find ourselves in the midst of a broken world, a world that's fractured by sin, dealing with our own weakness and sin, not just that which lies outside of us, God, I pray that you'd give us clear vision. I pray that you would clear away the fog, that you'd clear away the smoke, that you'd help us once again to set our gaze on you, the one who is enthroned in the heavens. Help us to fix our eyes on you. And God, we know that we need to do that moment by moment. That we'll finish asking for help and mercy. Five minutes later, be right back there again. But God, we're thankful that you are a God who allows us to do that. You never tired of us coming and pleading for mercy from you. So God, we rejoice in that this morning. God, I pray that you would do that work. I pray that you would give us mercy. I pray that you'd give mercy to those in in our midst, brothers and sisters right now who are struggling with sickness and suffering in different ways, loss, confusion, loneliness, struggling with temptation and sin. God, would you give mercy to my church family? God, I pray you'd give mercy to our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing contempt and scorn and persecution from those outside. God, would you give them mercy? It's wearying in this world, God. We pray that you lift our souls, that you refresh and revive us this morning because we know that Christ is exactly who he said he is. And he did what he said he came to do, to redeem, to restore. And so God, we rejoice in that this morning. Help us to rest in it today in the awesome reality of who you are, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who sits in the, enthroned in the heavens. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.